Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. On this episode, I'm talking to a filmmaking duo from New Zealand, David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve. Their new film is Tickled, one of the strangest, most unsettling documentaries of the year. David Ferrier worked in New Zealand as a TV reporter specializing in news of the weird. He came across online videos of grown men being tickled. An American company called Jane O'Brien Media was running a monthly event. Young athletes from anywhere on the planet could apply. If selected, they got free flights to LA, four nights in a really nice hotel, and $1,500 cash. It was called competitive endurance tickling. It surely qualified as news of the weird, so he contacted the American company behind the videos, Jane O'Brien Media, to ask them for an interview. A company representative replied, saying it wanted nothing to do with a homosexual journalist like David, which was weird because the videos are pretty gay. David continued to receive harassing, homophobic emails from Jane O'Brien Media. He finally decided to explore what exactly was going on with these tickling videos. Along the way, he teamed up with co-director Dylan Reeve, who brought an expertise in internet sleuthing. The two traveled to America to find out who was behind Jane O'Brien Media, and it just gets weirder from there. The film is called Tickled, and I'm very pleased to be joined at the School of Visual Arts Social Documentary Program with the filmmakers David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve. Welcome, boys. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. So a nice edit room. I have to confess that everything I know about New Zealand comes from watching Jane Campion's The Piano. In a new world, passion has no limits. Oh, okay. I was thinking you might say um, Flight of the Concords, which is maybe more accurate. Well, and I've never seen the Hobbit movies, so that, that no, that's would, that's not relevant. That's fine. Uh, I want to ask you: How do you see yourselves as being shaped by coming from New Zealand? That is a very good question. I, I mean, I think. Oh, you go first. Well, I, I think we've talked about it. People, people in New Zealand have asked us in Q and As after screenings. This is Dylan Reeves speaking, and I think. The thing that is most obvious is that we perhaps weren't as cautious or or reticent as we may have been, I think, if we were American filmmakers. That 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 distance between us and the and our subjects um, gave us a sense of security that, in reality, may not have been been reasonable, but we at least felt better about things. So when we were receiving legal threats from the US, um, it was a long way away and it didn't feel very real. Mm. So yeah, I think it was easier for us to to charge on ahead and. And um, not worry too much. And at the same time, I think our approach to things is probably a little bit gentler, possibly, to how, I mean, in New Zealand, we approach things very politely, like we're overly polite. Mm. And so I think in our approach to a lot of our subjects, whether they were on side with us or not, was a very polite, quiet, measured approach. We weren't rushing in, sort of banging on doors. So, uh, David, in the film, you kind of set up that you have this background as a TV journalist doing News of the Weird. Can you give us a better idea of, of how long you've been doing that, You know what your status is in New Zealand? Do you get stopped on the street in New Zealand? No, I think the only people that get stopped in New Zealand are rugby players and a few politicians. <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, New Zealand's incredibly low-key. Like, we, we don't get excited about things, really. Uh, that's sort of one way to put it. And, I mean, in New Zealand, I'd been at TV3 for almost 10 years. I did a journalism journalism degree and then started working at this TV station straight away. And for whatever reason, the, the network let me start just looking into these sort of very niche 
strange topics and they'd let me put them to air. And that's so what I ended up sort of being known for, I suppose. And so, you know, Tickled was originally going to be a, a two-minute news story uh, about this weird tickling contest where, you know, some New Zealanders were being flown to LA to be tickled. And so that's how it all started. And did you uh, have an interest in making a longer form uh, documentary? Were you looking for a subject or did this kind of turn into that accidentally? Yeah, I mean, this particular topic did sort of turn into it accidentally. I mean, I'd, be, I'd wanted to make a long form documentary for a long time and I'd, I'd sort of pitch different ideas to the network and always got them turned down, you know, because I was the guy who just did the minute 30, hmm. you know, wacky news story. And so I think probably on some level, I probably ended up resenting the network a little bit because I, I, they wouldn't let me make something. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and then I'd sort of stop looking for a long form documentary and then this happened very organically and suddenly it sort of ballooned into something that was sort of even bigger than the network that I was on. You know, here we are in America launching it here, which is very surreal. <laughs> and Dylan, how did you get roped into the um, Well, I mean, the whole thing, you, st- you see in the film, the whole thing started on Facebook. And so it was originally David posted publicly on their Facebook page that he was looking for people to talk to. And they publicly replied that they wanted nothing to do with a homosexual journalist, which once you look at their videos is a very disparate response it doesn't make sense and um, David of course screenshotted that as you do and posted that on his Facebook which I saw and immediately it just clicked in me that this was something bizarre and there was a really weird thing going on and now, um, did you know each other before then oh casually I mean mm. from you know for, we were Twitter and Facebook friends we'd met once or twice before but we weren't you know it wasn't like we BFFs. were besties waiting to make a documentary together yeah <laughs> so and he he posted that and then i think i just started digging because it was it was just so strange to see that reply i started blogging about some of the stuff uh, about you know who i thought was behind the company or what was going on or what the domain names because they, they were all the domain names were connected so you could kind of see that the company that owned janeobryanmedia.com also seemed to own these other, you know, 300-ish domain names that were related to various things that it was tickling. And, and that was like... It was a catalyst. Yeah, that was thing. that was part of it. And so I was blogging about that, and David was blogging about his weird interactions with them. And then we both started receiving legal threats, and then it was getting too complicated to write about. So we just sat down and went, well, obviously, it's a documentary then. Yeah, I mean, it was. I think it was almost those legal threats that united us because we were both suddenly under attack and this thing that had been this curious thing to write about and you know we'd be getting a lot of you know personal abuse over email and Facebook and that sort of thing where suddenly when these letters start turning out from lawyers to both of us it kind of united us in that way and we just decided to get some pizza and sort of discuss you know hey let's launch a a Kickstarter to possibly thinking about going to LA and sort of digging in a little bit deeper on the ground. And really cuz just it was just getting hard to write about. Like it was getting too <laughs> yeah. it was getting too confusing to put down in words on a on a a blog or something that, that, you, that we just we had to start telling it yeah. visually. Part 12. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you were getting these threats and along the way you discover you aren't the only people who've gotten threats from Jane O'Brien media. Can you give us a sense of like the scale of what you were uncovering? So that was one of the big catalysts for us was that when we started digging into the domain names, we found among all these, you know, ticklishmarines.com and and, um, ticklishbritish.com, there was also things that were, you know, clearly a first name and a last name.com or or something like that. And so you'd visit some of these websites and find out that what they were was was like a smear campaign. There was... There'd be these guys tickling videos, they'd have their real names, their home addresses, their phone numbers, their email addresses. There'd be stuff on there about them being perverted tickle fetishists. And you're like, well, what? Um, And so there was this bullying aspect that we saw. um, And there's probably 
50-ish domain names that, that sort of fit that pattern. And then we found, I found like 15 of the websites that were still active um, that I could see what had actually been posted on those websites. And so it was this this strange pattern of, of abuse and harassment um, emerged quite quickly. And, and that was just, that, that took what was a curious story with a weird threatening element into this place where it was a horrible harassment campaign against some number of people for really no fault of their own. And and being harassed by the same company that hired them seemingly to make the videos in the first place. So that was incredibly weird. Uh, you talk to a couple of the people on camera uh, who come across as pretty brave uh, given the harassment they've gone through for speaking to you on camera. How many other people did you talk to who wouldn't go on camera? I've got this big spread a very big frustrating spreadsheet on google docs of just people we contacted you know over facebook and twitter and email in just a million different ways and generally their responses being no i I won't talk to you purely because they were afraid of things kicking off again and like the second they they spoke to us they're afraid that their lives would sort of be derailed again and also i guess the fear a lot of these young men have is that the last time they ran into problems, it was dealing with some people on the internet they hadn't met before. And then suddenly I'm emailing them or Facebooking mm. them about this thing saying, hey, I'm from New Zealand, you know, want to talk about this strange tickling related thing. And so their alarm bells are sort of going off. And so no, it was, it was very, very frustrating and a lot of work to get people that would actually reply to our emails and then enter into a dialogue and then be able to Skype and then eventually be able to actually meet them in person. And even the people we did get in the film, like TJ, who, who we see in the film, like it wasn't, we, we flew him to LA to meet us so we could interview him. Um, and it wasn't really until we got him, we picked him up at the airport, and it wasn't really until we got him in the van and we all introduced ourselves and, and, and he, you know, felt comfortable with him that he really even finally agreed to actually talk to us. So right up until that minute, he was still very unclear. And then even after that, we, we filmed his interview two ways. One, you know, the way where you can see his face and the way where you can't. And it took us a while after we'd filmed the interview to convince us to let him use his face. Now, you said it was a little bit of an asset, at least at the beginning, that you were from New Zealand. These lawsuits coming from America seemed very distant. At what point did the intimidation start to feel more real? I think it was... I mean, when we were, I mean, I found it unsettling once we started hearing from, once we were in America and still having this dialogue with these, you know, American attorneys, because when you're on the ground, that seemed, I know everything once we're in the state seemed scarier, whether we were door stopping someone and they were calling the police or, because, you know, we're there on on journal visas and that becomes a little bit more unsettling, I think, when we're actually on the ground. Yeah, because all it takes is one grumpy cop calling INS to get us kicked out of the country. And, and maybe not be able to get back. And the, the other thing that happened is, we, you know, they sent three guys to New Zealand to talk to us to tell us there was no story, which is, I mean, crazy when you think you're flying three people from New York to New Zealand, first class, and putting them up for five nights or something in the Hilton. Um, it's yeah, a mixed that, message there. It's a mixed message. Slightly. Yeah, that, that's but, where it jumped from, you know, emails into reality. You know, this physical, they're physically sending people to New Zealand. To talk to us face to face. And and they said, we were told very specifically that if you come to the US, there won't be a moment you won't be being followed by a private investigator and there won't be a moment you're not being served with legal papers. Like Those were specific words that were spoken to us. 
So, you know, when did you we, feel like they made good on that threat? N- well, not initially. Um, when we did when we did land in the states, though, it was you know there was a fear that we were being we were being followed or we were worried. Like our cameraman when we first came over was was genuinely paranoid that we were being followed and that, and that they were going to track us down to our motel and and stalk us, which they did not do. And uh, now, David, with your background doing news of the weird. Was this a kind of different order of investigation or or had you ever gone up against a powerful interest like this before? Yeah, it was definitely a first for going up against something, you know, someone that, you know, this company had so much money and so many, there were so many lawyers involved. That was all new. But I mean, weirdly, when I when I first started in the newsroom, I was on, which I think is fortunate, I was on a general news rotation on the news on the newsroom and I'd, I'd have to go and do door knocks and do various things that, you're, that a reporter would have to do. So I think... Right on, very early on in my career, I found out that I didn't like doing that that stuff, which is probably why I went into entertainment and sort of pop culture. But coming back to doing that, it wasn't an outrageous concept to sort of put myself in situations that were a little bit um, a little bit dicey. But it was it was difficult. It wasn't the norm. Now along the way, you're you're kind of taking these risks. You're going up against legal intimidation. It's one thing to do that if you're uncovering environmental disaster or a corrupt politician, but when you're doing it on behalf of tickling videos, is that a feel of a different order? Yeah, it was unusual. I mean, we we had to, I mean, Dylan and I both had to remind ourselves that this was just a story about tickling, essentially. (laughs) And as crazy as it got and as paranoid as we got and as, as large as the threats got, you know, we had to remind ourselves this is just tickling. But at that same time, the stuff related to the tickling was so, it got so dark and so strange, it, it sort of justified, I mean, the reason we, we are making the film essentially is to try and stop this stuff from happening and stop the harassment happening to us and more importantly to the, to the victims, to these young men who have been, you know, put through this stuff. In the film, David uses a hidden camera to confront a representative of Jane O'Brien Media and records this threat. You know, do you do we really want someone coming after you with all that money? I've known a lot of rich people in my life. I've worked for a lot of them. They don't work by the same set of rules. They don't dangle them out of buildings anymore, but they don't have to. And that's the thing. They start suing, and you're done halfway through or a quarter of the way through because it costs so much to defend yourself. Along the way, we see you employing some undercover uh, video techniques, uh, carrying a hidden camera, that sort of thing. What did you learn about undercover reporting in the course of this? It's really difficult. The best thing I learned was our, our cameraman when we when we came to LA the first time, He um, he we went to Walmart and we got a whole lot of black fabric and we put it up inside, we pinned it to the lining inside our SUV that we sat in the back of across the road from this place. It turns out that way, you, from the outside, it just looks like a normal SUV. You can't see through the tinted windows, but there's no shapes. So there you go, black fabric mm-hmm. up around up around the outside of the SUV for the for the secret filming. Yeah, but hidden, I mean, hidden cameras are uh, it's, it's all difficult. Like nothing goes correctly. I mean, I was trying to film. I, I had a camera <laughs> hidden in a coffee cup, and I thought if I you know if I had this camera hidden in a coffee cup and I'm having a conversation with this person next to me, I'll get a great shot of their face and everything. You know, I'll see it clearly, but. Because of the way I'd rigged the rigged the, um, the coffee cup, and also because when you're holding a cup, I was very nervous about being too obvious. I held it down too low, and suddenly my main covert shot is of this gentleman's crotch. <laughs> so there's very simple things that you think it's going to work, and you think I'm going to get this beautiful shot of this man's face as I'm talking to him. Suddenly, it's just a crotch. 
We'll be back in a minute with more of David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve talking about Tickled. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by Sundance Now Doc Club. Watch hundreds of documentaries chosen by Tom Powers. If you have an appetite for internet mysteries, watch A Gay Girl in Damascus, The Amina Profile. It begins with an erotically charged romance between a Canadian woman and a Syrian blogger, but turns into a real-life thriller. You can watch Sundance Now Doc Club on your TV, computer, or mobile device. Go to docclub.com to sign up for a free trial. In Tickled, as David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve dig deeper into Jane O'Brien Media, they uncover one false identity after another. Each step grows more ominous. I asked David if he ever considered giving up. Early on, I think, was the time when we, we were considering, or I was certainly considering dropping it, just once the legal threats started piling in and before we'd gotten on a plane and, and gone to America. But I think once those three guys from New York came to Auckland, that was where it was like, it's just, we're too, too curious. It was just curiosity was too much. Plus, being from New Zealand and doing what we do, I mean, we both work in TV in New Zealand, like, it's not a big moneymaker. And so it's not like we had yeah, we don't a, have lot a lot to, to lose. lose in a way. <laughs> I mean, Dylan, you probably did because you've, you've got a family and stuff. I, I felt less yeah, for affected. Yeah, for some reason I wasn't thinking about that. I'm not sure why. And afterwards I look back at, I look <laughs> back at some of the stuff in the film. I know. I look back at some of the stuff in the film and I think, oh, I probably should have thought a bit more about that. But, I mean, the other thing is we could egg each other on. You know, there were two of us facing the same thing going through this process together. And, you know, if one of us got a little a little shy of it or whatever, we could talk each other out of it. We could convince each other that we were doing the right thing. So that was probably helpful at those times when there might have been some doubt. Yeah, I'm sure that makes a difference. Yeah, I yeah, think big if, difference. if either of us had been going through it alone, we probably would have just spiraled into our own our own self-doubt. And depression. Yeah, <laughs> just bailed. No, honestly, yeah. like having us both in it was, it was a huge bonus. So uh, last summer, your producer, Carthew Neal, sent me uh, the, the finished cut of this film and for consideration of the Toronto International Film Festival. I loved the film. I invited it. Uh, and then uh, we encountered this process that all films have to go through in order to get distribution in America, which is you need to get errors and omissions insurance, the kind of insurance that protects you from, uh, from lawsuits. And there was a kind of tough conversation I had with Carthew as a deadline was approaching where uh, he said to me, you know, I, it's taking us longer uh, to get our, our errors and omissions insurance uh, because this is such a sticky topic. And, uh, and I've, I felt so bad because it seemed like here's a project you guys had been on working on for a couple of years. You had you know, reached close to the finish line and now suddenly it looked like you were in doubt again. It was, it was incredibly it was frustrating. Yeah, it was, an, and because I felt really, I felt really passionate about Toronto because that's the first film festival I'd sort of I'd been to as a reporter like a year before that, uh-huh. and you know, so I really wanted to get into Toronto, so I was really wound up about that. Yeah, and it's, and it's funny when you you don't think about it; it's just not something you consider when you're making the film necessarily. Or we knew it was a problem we'd have to encounter, but we didn't think it would be as difficult as it was. And it turns out making a film about people who don't want films made about them uh, really complicates that. But it's just frustrating as well. Like we've made the film; it's here. You're wanting it in your festival, and suddenly we just have to be like, no, we can't. You know, we can't do that. That is a very 
irritating conversation to have. <laughs> well, happily, it got a very nice spot at the Sundance Film Festival in January. So here you are releasing this film that Jane O'Brien Media has made it abundantly clear they don't really want you uh, pursuing this. What was that process like to put it in front of an audience? Yeah, it felt nerve-wracking that first screening because, you know, I think we all sat at the back and we were just sort of observing the audience as well and their reactions. But, you know, we we're curious what would come from within Jane O'Brien Media as well. And, you know, at our at our second Sundance screening, one of the gentlemen from Jane O'Brien Media was in the audience and he was, you know, he was noted by audience members around him sort of getting irritated and taking a whole lot of notes. And so that kind of turned to this weird buzz as well because we were wondering what why he was taking notes what that was for and it was a very weird experience the whole thing but it's also like nothing we ever imagined like when we when we first started making the film our 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 vision for its end result was going to be like a 40 to 60 minute kind of youtube or vimeo thing that we'd try and sell for five dollars a pop that was what we imagined the outcome to be so to now see it playing in cinemas in the u.s and, and in cinemas in new zealand and australia and it's like every every step of it after you know after after opening it at Sundance, every single step after that has just been completely unimagined. Previously, it was just it's just going so much, just in such a different direction than we ever could have dreamed. I think. Now the the film got acquired for distribution at Sundance. As you were sitting down talking to distributors, what did you have to walk them through? Given the you know the kind of legal intimidation around this film. We didn't fill them in on it too much. <laughs> we just... I mean, yeah. They, just, they, watch, I mean, we, just watching the film, one gathers that you're taking on something yeah, unique. Yeah, I think people were aware that of what might come, you know, once the film was out there. I mean, and I, th- I think p- people entered into those meetings with us with that in mind. And, I mean, obviously, Magnolia and HBO who picked it up were willing to take on that fight, and thankfully. But, yeah, I mean, that was something that was we made it clear in the film, and, and I think that whoever met with us sort of knew what could potentially happen after the fact. Yeah, there was no, there was no watching the film without getting, without getting a sense for what was potential, what, what the potential trouble was. So a month or so after Sundance, you showed the film at the True False Film Festival in Columbia, Missouri, and I saw a press report that you had been served with some kind of legal paper uh, over the film there. What happened in that case? David thought he found a fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I'd gone out to some some the filmmakers' drinks, and I'd finally left my hotel room and went and turned up at this um, bar. And a woman tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Are you David Farrier?" And I thought, you know, here's someone who wants to talk about the film. And I said, "Yes, it's David." And she said, "Okay, you're served," and just handed me over, over an envelope and walked off. And I thought this might happen. I was expecting it to happen at a Q and A or at a theatre, but she'd obviously followed me or waited for me at this bar and uh, there, there were two lawsuits in there and, and it's been filed where the film would played essentially so there was one in Utah for Sundance and then one in Missouri for the, the festival I was at at True False and there were basically there were two lawsuits sort of covering various it was defamation it was all defamation so you know that that was the fir- those were the first two and and we're, we're working through that the so th- yeah, those things are still ongoing. Well, th- those have been um, those have been dismissed from for jurisdictional reasons, which is great. Who knows what the future holds? But meanwhile, the film has opened in New Zealand. Did anything occur uh, around that? 
helping? No, we're, we're wondering because, as I say, at various festivals in America, these you know people from Jane O'Brien Media have, have turned up and they've been in audiences. New Zealand was relatively quiet. It was just a you know it was great in that we had audiences that wanted to see the film, but there was no craziness. You didn't there. miss the drama. A little, a little bit. A little bit. I mean, you know, we'd you know a month before that we'd been in Missouri and we you know we had to stop the screening and the police had to physically escort two private detectives who'd been sent from New York to try and sort of covertly record the screening. And I mean, there is a level of that which is interesting and, and I guess exciting on some level. And you know, when you're just stuck with a normal audience watching a film, <laughs> you, you become bored. But no, I mean, yeah, no drama. Yeah, I'm very curious what will happen in the states as this rolls out. Because, I mean, it's going to be fascinating. What's been your experience getting a crash course in U.S. law? Like, you know, How does that contrast to what you're used to in New Zealand? The stuff that was relevant to us is kind of similar. So the, the most important things relevant to us were um, to do with copyright and uh, fair use, that sort of thing, because obviously we've used videos that Jan O'Brien produced. Um, so we have, similar, we have a similar law around that in terms of, in terms of criticism and reporting. Um, so that was okay, and then the other issue, that, the only other issue we really had to be aware of was things about um, about who you can record when and where, um, and that was just something that we made sure we knew the details before we went in, um, so that we didn't uh, put ourselves in an awkward position recording people in a in a place that would be illegal, for example. Yeah, and the main, I mean, we were making a film about a company that was incredibly litigious, and so during the shoot, we just wanted to make sure we didn't, you know, sort of mess ourselves around by doing anything illegal so yeah but you know it's all on the internet you can read up about this stuff so you now have the, uh, this depth of experience standing up to a litigious bully uh, you couldn't have known when you started this that the film would be coming out against a US election uh, where <laughs> another litigious bully uh, is is taking the stage um, what have you learned from Are you pitching a new project <laughs> Well, it's a good question. Was more asking, what have you learned from standing up to a litigious bully that that you think U.S. journalists should know? Well, no, I think it's it's doable, and you can, you know, I think documentaries are great um, form of doing that, where you you can out you can out an organization of for or or a person in a very public way and explain why what is happening is wrong. You know, it's doable. But then also America is terrifying because, you know, we come from a place in New Zealand where, you know, people don't really sue. But then we did it and we're, we're still alive. Yeah, I think, you know, as long as you've got good support l- legally um, and people who, who have your back, then that, then it's it's certainly easier to take on those challenges. You've got someone who can write a really good letter, that sort of thing. Are you thinking about a new project? Yeah, bouncing ideas around. But, you know, it's like where do you go after this film about this sort of rabbit hole of tickling, right? <laughs> it's, it's like, there's not an obvious next step. Well, there's a whole catalogue of other fetishes. Yeah, there are. We, we don't want to become to become the fetish doco guys. Because <laughs> so the thing is, ultimately the film's not about the fetish, and, it, and I don't think we would have ever taken on um, the project if it were. If it were just the fetish, you know, we, we can leave those things alone and leave the people who are into them to themselves. They're totally able to do whatever they want but um it was just it was really only it could have been any fetish if it any other fetish or anything really if it was it, what was what was interesting to us was was the the power dynamic behind it all and the, and the the weird aspects of anonymity and and harassment well for listeners there's a whole lot about this film that i haven't said and you're just going to have to watch it to see for yourself dylan reeve and david ferrier thank you very much for joining me thank you thank you 
On our next episode, I talk to Roger Ross Williams. He was the first African-American director to ever win an Oscar in 2010 for his documentary short, Music by Prudence. His new film is Life Animated, about the Suskin family who learns to communicate with their autistic son, Owen, by speaking in the dialogue of Disney movies. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.